Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of a series on gap-filling, when government and governing institutions fail. We're talking with community leaders about how nonprofit and advocacy organizations, as well as local grassroots groups, are doing the work for the community when the government can't or won't. This week, we're talking to several individuals that run a local uh, shelter that is meant for people that are experiencing homelessness. Uh, And I think that there were several interesting uh, points that kind of uh, pushed the two of us into being interested in, in talking to these individuals, right? And I guess we can talk about this first, is that individuals experiencing homelessness tend to be invisible, right? When you're thinking right, about right. these government structures and programs, um, even right, the response to the pandemic was, well, let's pass emergency measures for unemployment and what about food subsidies? And uh, how are we going to handle education? Uh, but there wasn't this uh, interest, or at least it wasn't very prevalent in talking about well, what about the homeless uh, and people that are experiencing homelessness. Right. And I think that one of the things that was particularly I don't know if interesting is the right word. That's not the word I'm looking for. But you know what I mean? In terms of thinking about um, how we respond uh, to things like the pandemic or other types of policies where people are made invisible, right? So we, we make policy choices and people are rendered invisible in the process, but that there are organizations on the ground that are doing the work to make sure that the needs of this particularly vulnerable population of people are met. And they're doing so in these really adaptive and responsive ways. And it's almost, it sounds so cliche, but it seems almost like a dance, right? Like things are constantly changing. And we were, we've been talking about this previously, but you know, whether it's the pandemic or even weather, right? So we're in Northeast Ohio, who knows what the weather's going to be like in Northeast Ohio from day to day. So providing services to people experiencing homelessness in a place like Northeast Ohio means that you have to be adaptive. You have to be thinking about what's coming next. Right. And, and I think that that's really the, the main second uh, point that you and I felt really compelled by in, in talking uh, to, to our guest this week, which is that this has to be so community tailored that this is right the, the needs of the individuals that are experiencing homelessness are so dramatically different based on just geography alone right in northeast ohio it's important that rta has these days weeks where uh, individuals that are experiencing homelessness can come on and ride for free all day right because there's got to be a way to get people in the winter out of the, the bitter cold and the snow uh, but in Phoenix, that that would never be, <laughs> right? An excuse. Right. <laughs> it definitely wouldn't be during the winter. Uh, and yet, they also have these really extremely hot days. It was it was 117 degrees yesterday, right? Where 
folks that experience homelessness, where are they going? They can only be under a bridge for so long before the heat can exhaust you. Where are they getting water from? So that the organizations that deal with these issues have to be very extremely tailored to the community in which they are providing these services. And that what that looks like, especially when working with a very vulnerable population that is fairly untrustworthy of government and any really organizational intervention, how one does that and how an organization does that is a really interesting and uh, important and, and potentially innovative way of thinking about how uh, we can fill these gaps. Uh, Heidi Goblish is executive director of the Menanoia Project. Recently, Heidi served as the executive director of the West Shore Family YMCA, a branch of the YMCA of Greater Cleveland, located in Westlake, Ohio. Under her leadership, she introduced a new staffing structure, oversaw shifting staff culture uh, to one of the more member and needs-driven uh, organizations and strengthen, strengthened relationships with other community leaders, as well as saw growth and fund development for the branch's financial aid program. Before that, she was the executive director at Big Brothers Big Sisters in Marshfield, Wisconsin, where she transformed a once struggling mentoring program into a financially and operationally stable nonprofit. She began her nonprofit career at the UMOM New Day Center, <laughs> the largest family homeless shelter in Phoenix, Arizona. She began working in development, but moved into case management under the SSVF grant to get a better understanding of the population the shelter was serving. She was drawn to her position at the Menanoia Project because of the opportunity that it presented her to get back to where she started, um, working with vulnerable individuals with the added experiences and lessons that she had gained from her other positions. We're glad to have you, Heidi. You did so good with your bio. <laughs> She just the brain. <laughs> Long bios mean successful careers. So, yes. <laughs> uh, also with us is Katie Prescott. She is the development and communications director at the Metanoia Project. She comes to Cleveland from Vermont by way of Southern Virginia. After getting her bachelor's degree in history from George Mason University in Northern Virginia, Katie returned to Danville. Virginia, and took a job as an intern for the Dan River Foundation, where she was placed in a youth center in a government-subsidized neighborhood where she worked to provide food, homework help, and a safe environment for children to spend their time after school. After her year as an intern, she went on to work at the YMCA in Danville before moving up to Cleveland to work at the YMCA in Westlake as the Director of Member Impact before she came to work for the Metanoia Project. She's excited to work at the Metanoia Project because it gives her a chance to get back to her roots, working with vulnerable populations, and really make a difference in people's lives through the simple act of caring. Katie, great to have you with us, too. Thank you. Excellent. This is wonderful. Um, we don't do a ton of double interviews, so it's really fun to be able to have both of you with us today. Um, I want to start by uh, just asking you to, you know, we just read your bios. So we got we got the professional list of what you've done. But tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you came to be a part of the Metadoya Project. Sure, I can start. Um, so... <laughs> When I first started in my career, I've always wanted to work nonprofit. I like the feels. And that's um, kind of what got me back to, you know, getting back into the homeless population and serving them is, is the feels. Um, I have three kids, 
and a husband, so maybe four sometimes. Uh, <laughs> um, but so we're pretty busy with them. They're into sports and all their kind of thing. But what has always been important for my husband and I is to give back and let our children see how important it is to serve other people. And I think that is really shown through the Metanoia Project. You know, we rely a lot on our individual, you know, donors and our individual volunteers to come and help make this mission a success. And so being able to be proud of where I work and show up every day to see that impact in our community, I think is fantastic. So I have... I think the last time I worked at a for-profit was when I was 16 and I was lifeguarding at a private pool. But for my entire, I mean, you, you read my bio, for my entire professional career, it's been nonprofit the whole time. And when I moved to Ohio, I was, I was that girl. I moved because of a boy. <laughs> I spent a year as a stay-at-home girlfriend. And then I was like, as many people have learned during quarantine, staying with other people, you can't do it. You can't do it. So I um, told him I needed a job and I found I decided to go back to the Y and I ended up with Heidi at Westlake. She was our executive director. She ran our entire building. I answered to her 75 to 80% of the building answered to me. Um, So we spent a lot of time together. And when she announced that she was leaving before she said, I'm taking you with me, I had a little bit of a freak out. (laughs) Because I was like, I know what we're capable of. I know what we can do. I know what we have done together. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to make that impact with somebody else in your shoes. And then she was like, don't worry. Don't worry. You're coming with me. (laughs) She didn't really have a choice. (laughs) Um, We're going to go help homeless people now. And I was like, you know what? I'm I'm very okay with that. (laughs) And so now I'm here. So now, uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar, and I suspect that there are probably um, uh, many of them, what is the Metanoia Project? What does the organization do? And can you tell us a bit about the history and origin story? Sure. I'll let Katie explain what Metanoia means, and then I can kind of go into what we actually do. Yeah. So the Metanoia, the word itself is a Greek word that describes a change in one's way of life, usually resulting from a spiritual journey or a change of heart. And the Metanoia project itself began in 2007. A commission got together of outreach officials, police officials, and just people that were concerned with the community and the growing number of unsheltered homeless people in Cleveland. Um, And out of that commission was born the Metanoia Project. And what we do is during the winter months, so November through April, we provide temporary overnight shelter or hospitality to our guests who would normally stay out on the streets. And so this population that we're talking about, it's not, so we have, you know, your traditional shelters within Cleveland. The population that we are really serving are those ones that are really resistant. They probably have a lot of trauma that they've experienced or um, substance abuse, and they can't go into those traditional shelters because they are still actively using. They might have some mental health barriers that they they aren't willing to trust that system, quote unquote. Um, and so that's where we we come in. We break down majority of the barriers. You know, a lot of them don't try to take their names and stuff like that. We we try to meet them where they're at and get them to where they, they need to be so that they can get the housing or get the substance abuse issue take resolved or mental health, you know, 
stuff like that. So that's kind of our, our niche in the greater Cleveland spectrum of homeless population and, and what we're trying to do and serve. Can you tell us a little bit about how you go about doing that? Like what are the, what is the program that you offer? Sure. So we consider ourselves a hospitality center or centers. I think it's um, kind of a great way to look at it. You know, people are like, oh, homeless and homeless shelters. And it has like this negative connotation to it. And when you kind of spin it as, no, we are a hospitality center, just like when you go to a hotel, it's the hospitality. So what do you expect? Do you expect people to be caring and kind and meet you at the door and greet you? And that's kind of what we try to do at Metanoia is we want to greet the people when they come in, make them feel like humans because oftentimes people overlook them or they just they don't even acknowledge that they exist. These are human people that we bypass on on the side of the road or, you know, we walk past them or drive past them and we don't think each one of these people have a story and each one has a struggle just like you and I and being able to tell their message and help them and connect with them is what we do. So when they come through our doors, they might get a meal, they might get a shower, depending on our location. And then we kind of sit and talk with them. We might have different places coming in, such as Ducks on the Street, which we've partnered with Metro Health. They come in and they do some um, medical interventions for them if they want to see them. We have housing. So housing applications might be filled out. Maybe they're trying to collect IDs. So then we're just trying to be the connector um, to those other resources. Then we give them um, some blankets and some space to sleep. And that's kind of what, what we do. We just try to build those relationships and tell their story. Now, Heidi, you've worked with the homeless population in Arizona as well. And and so I imagine that there are special barriers or circumstances that are unique to a homeless individual, right, that's in Phoenix versus in Cleveland. What are some of those different approaches or services that are needed? Sure. Um, so in Phoenix, I worked with the SSVF grant, which is specifically for veteran families and their services. And with that grant, we were able to get them, you know, a deposit. We were able to pay for some rent, you know, certain aspects of that, get them service connected. Here in Phoenix, or sorry, <laughs> here in Cleveland, they do still have services like that. But this population that we are serving here in Cleveland is a little bit different because some of them might not be qualified under a certain grant that would pay for those deposits that would pay for that rent or substance, you know, substancy substance. All right. I can't even talk today. Getting, so getting them connected to the resources that can help them, I think um, is a little bit more of a challenge because there are so many different avenues that they can take and do they qualify? When we were, Katie and I went on outreach Two, two weeks ago. Yeah, two weeks ago. Um, we came across a, a man. He is 27, I believe. And he just kind of falls in this gap of he's too old for anything devoted to youth. That cuts off at 25. He's too young to be sent to anything that has to do with older population because he's not yet 60. So he's in this middle ground where there's really not a lot accessible or there's what is accessible, the information isn't getting to him. And, and so it's really hard to see that struggle. You know, we do, we have these 
these gaps in our system and how, how do you fix these gaps? And I think that has to do a lot where we can fill in. You know, we we show up, we have outreach workers out. Other organizations are have outreach workers and they're trying to get them connected to different services. But Metanoia itself in the cold winter months is that spot that they can go to that they they know is safe, that, okay, they're going to try to work with this person and get them into housing, whether they fit in this gap or not. And I would say that there is a large portion of homeless individuals that that do fit in that too old for this, but too young for this. I think we're going to probably see that even more with what we're facing regarding COVID and people not being able to pay rent and mortgages and losing jobs. And so um, this next year will be quite a quite a challenge for people. You just touched on this, but so much of what we've been talking about as a part of this series is thinking about how organizations, groups of people, individuals even, are responding to gaps in the system, um, right? Where we have a policy intervention over here and we have a policy intervention over here and either it's not going well (laughs) um, and they're just bad policies or that they're missing Uh, populations of people um, who need services. And so how we're addressing that, you would, you, you alluded to it already, but you know, how do you see uh, the Metanoia project as filling this gap specifically in kind of Cleveland and the greater Cleveland region? Yeah, I think um, for us, like I said, we have that special niche in the continuum of care you know you have your traditional shelters that do take in a large portion of our homeless population here in Cleveland and I feel that metanoia really focuses on those shelter resistant and so being able to connect and get those individuals into our service so that we can really focus so we're kind of at an interesting time for metanoia also like my bio said, I had just started in January and brought Katie on. And so there was some changes with, you know, leadership. We had changes within, which I'm sure we'll touch on, um, <laughs> with some locations. And then COVID. COVID hit. <laughs> so it was it was a great experience to see a lot of things in six months. But getting back to your question, uh with those changes, I think we are still serving those people really well because our model is changing. We're going more of a smaller ratio, not just because of COVID, but because that is what is best for this population. You can have those more intimate conversations, develop those relationships a little bit more um, intensely, but intentionally. And sometimes people are like, intensely like that seems a little like whoa but it's not because when you're thinking what this person has gone through they they need that relationship they need that strong relationship and consistency mm-hmm. and so when i when we say intensely but intentional it is so important to remember that intentional part of we really need to hear what they want to do. It's their life, their story, their their journey. We're just going to go alongside them. And how can we help best assist that? So uh, let me ask you this. Uh, is the work that you guys do, do you see it as um, filling the gap of government failure because government 
doesn't have the impetus to step up to do it? Or is it that really you do need to have an organization such as yours that is um, that can react, you know, fast on its feet, where you can respond and you're very agile to to shifting uh, scenarios? I think it's a little bit of a combo of both. Um, I think that we definitely need that part, the metanoia part, where when they're out on the street doing outreach and somebody says, hey, I really need to get into shelter or, hey, I'm ready to get into treatment. Two hours from now, they might not be. So we need to be able to act fast and get them to a place. So say somebody's on the street and they're like, okay, it's freezing out here. Yeah, you're right. I do need to go in. Well, shelter might be full. They might not trust the traditional shelter system. If you give them too many options, they might change their mind versus we'll drop you off at Metanoia. We know they've got a spot for you. And then, and then that way we can kind of pick up, okay, so, you know, what's your story? What, you know, what have you faced? Like where, maybe it's just that night that they want to come in, but maybe they have a great experience because we do have that hospitality concept and they go, oh, this place isn't as bad as I was thinking it might be. Oftentimes fear is our greatest barrier for anybody. And so um, having somebody alongside you and reassuring you that you're okay helps break that down so that they come back again. So now you guys alluded to this already a little bit, um, but so last winter your organization was in the news when the city of Cleveland uh, was considering closing one of your shelters. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened and, and how you guys responded to that? So everybody probably saw a lot of news articles, a lot of things around Christmas time. <laughs> maybe even like on Christmas. So yeah, um, <laughs> which was an interesting spot to, um, we, our previous, we had a previous executive director and then I was coming in at this same time. So it was a shakeup for everything, not only for the location, but just for Metanoia and Metanoia staff. So with Denison UCC is what you're referring to. That was one of our locations that were was identified before I had started. We were also located at Maliki Church. So those two sites um, kind of ran similar. With Maliki, we operated based off of temperature, field temperature, but then also on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, we were open at night. So then the rest of the days was dependent on the temperature. And we maxed out at 45 people at that location. That had been previously our primary location with no other secondary site. Then Denison became an option and they had moved forward um, with that location. And because of some of the structural things, Denison UCC was actually the one that had experienced some legal issues with the city and county. It wasn't Metanoia. Um, Metanoia rented that space out. So yes, it affected us a lot. Um, it was it was looking at, okay, are we going to be able to move forward and still be able to host um, our guests in this location? We were able to figure out a situation. We had 
Uh, the the city was very nice. They had a couple court cases and they kept just saying, you know, we're going to wait to make our decision until April 15th, which is conveniently the last day of our season. So they, they were very nice about that. They worked with us there. We had volunteers that came in. So it was really great. Is um, The official issue was the fire suppression system in that there wasn't one. So housing, providing hospitality for 60 guests in a church where there were not fire alarms or sprinklers kind of gives an issue. Um, so we had a t- dedicated team of volunteers. They ran shifts. They were our fire watch. Um, they would come in. Well, seven days a week, every hour we were open and their entire job was just to walk around with walkie talkies and make sure there were no fires. So with their help, we were able to stay open. Um, Another thing we did was we actually partnered with a couple other areas, entities in our city and started moving some of our guests to different locations. We housed 15 women at the Catholic worker storefront. So that cut the numbers down at Denison and then... 35 men around 35 around 35 men at the city mission they gave us space at the city mission so it was metanoia at the city mission which lowered our numbers at denison down to 15 which was a safer number as far as the city was concerned about fires so which i completely (laughs) um and and with that transition uh we were able to then expand out over to the east side which had never happened before um, City Mission was fantastic host to us. They were really a blessing. And same with the storefront. They had previously, the season before, had a small group of men that were at the storefront. And they found housing, I think, for almost 11 of them the previous season. So there is definitely evidence of that the smaller small, group, small model. And that's kind of what we're shooting for. So, and as in regards to, you guys are probably wondering like, well, what happened, you know, with this legal battle? Well, COVID happened. (laughs) COVID definitely happened. It still has not been brought forth (laughs) because of COVID. Everything froze. We did eventually, because of staffing reasons, uh, have to shut down a little bit early due to COVID. So we ended up pulling staff from Denison UCC. The church was able to still operate that location, we left blankets and cots and things. So they got some volunteers that came in and still served the, you know, neighborhood with that. And then we pulled the the staff over to the other locations and then it just kind of snowballed from there. People were dropping out from it's seasonal work too. We're coming towards the end of our season and um, COVID (laughs) COVID hit us. So we ended up saying, you know what, it's safer for us staff and our guests because we can't operate traditionally. So we're going to have to shut that these operations down. And we were able to keep on two of our operation managers through this. NIOC, which is the Northeast Coalition for Homeless Services, um, they were able to secure a hotel. And at that hotel, they were asking for some assistance. And we dedicated our two operation managers for that location full-time they I don't know what we would have done without you know Don and Jean's shout out to them because they were fantastic one was completely dedicated to all the food services she brought food for them for all three meals so she would go pick them up for breakfast lunch and dinner and bring it there and they managed everybody so blessing for them that they that we were able to have them and um 
So that's kind of what the craziness of the long story, short story. I don't know where, where we're at, but that's what, that's what we're looking at. <laughs> that's, I mean, that story is wild. And I think it goes to kind of this, like what we were talking about previously too, right? So we might, we can think big picture about how we address um, people experiencing homelessness um, from a policy, kind of a top level policy, but also like all of these other little pieces that fit, right? So safety considerations, other collaboration, you know, challenges and opportunities, um, like, and how, in thinking about how you all have been really nimble in responding in all of these um, situations to provide the services to people experiencing homelessness in Cleveland and continue to be able to provide hospitality, kindness, generosity to to that community. So just, I suppose that's my way of saying kudos. <laughs> I do have a shout out to LMM, which they were helping with our transportation through all the debacle too. Yeah. Because <laughs> when we were, we were originally busing people to Denison, then we were like, hey, we actually need to bus people to City Mission. They were on board. So kudos to them too, because there it is. It's a huge partnership with the greater Cleveland community and without everybody working together, we are all going to fail. And that's not what we're doing. We're all trying to work towards ending homelessness. And I think that's really important to highlight is we can talk about the hospitality. We can talk about homeless people, but without everybody working together, nothing's going to get accomplished. So we've, we, we kind of talk about this a little bit at the beginning, but um, one of the things that Casey and I, talk about in our own work is how different communities are, you know, talked about in public discourse. And so when we're talking about people experiencing homelessness, we have a tendency to use really negative language. The conversation isn't very positive. I mean, not isn't very positive, maybe is an understatement. Um, (laughs) And so can you can you talk us through a little bit about the work that you're doing to change that narrative and 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 maybe even a little bit about how our listeners can help stop the stigmatization of people experiencing homelessness? Yeah, I'm going to let Katie answer this question. We had a really unique experience just I think a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. and and I think she she'll be able to explain it best. <laughs> So we had over at the hotel, we had our operations managers reach out to some of the guests there who had previously been guests at Metanoia. And we wanted to know if anyone would be willing to tell me about their experience at Metanoia since it was my first year as in charge of communications. I was I was like, the problem is no one knows who we are, what we do. <laughs> you talked about Metanoia and everyone knew do UCC and the legal battle, but that was it. And Uh, A lot of our guests are still not super trusting. They don't want to give a lot of information. So some were willing to write down quotes and give me their initial. We had one gentleman whose name is Demetrius. He was willing to sit down with me while he he was standing. We were outside. But he was willing to meet me in person and let me actually interview him on camera about what his experience at Metanoia was and how it had shaped his, his year. And Demetrius... I I love highlighting him because he is the exact opposite of what I think people typically think homeless people are. He graduated high school. He graduated college. He's, I think, three credits away from a master's in law. 
he became homeless because he could not find the proper medical support for his bipolar disorder. So he's not on drugs. He's not an alcoholic. He's not a horrible person. He, he needs help. He needs mental like illness support and he's not getting it from what society is offering him right now. So he became homeless. When we asked him about his experience at Metanoia, he said that it was necessary because with the support of our staff, the relationships he built with them, he was able to get connected with doctors. He recently got new glasses so he can officially see. He was really proud of his glasses. He was so proud of his glasses. (laughs) So with, if he had been on the streets or struggling to afford rent somewhere, he would not have been able to afford the glasses that he now has so that he can see. So homeless people are not typically who you think they are. Um, Recently, I looked up some statistics and 11% of homeless people in the United States are veterans. And as a military child myself, that is huge for me. They serve in a war, they serve our country, and then we, we bring them back and we're like, thanks, we're not doing anything to support what happened to you over there. Thanks. Um, <laughs> and I think it's also important to um, really touch on this just because of some of the recent events with the racism and the systemic racist connotation of what's happening in our society that right now nearly 50% of the homeless population is African-American. So if you do not see that systemic situation, you, I don't know. I just think that you're missing how much this. What's important to know is African-Americans make up 50% of the homeless population. They make up less than 15 of the national general population. So Things like unemployment, high rent, low paying jobs, they affect certain groups of people at a disproportionate rate. You know, and some of the things that I think Metanoia is really trying to focus on for us just to try to steer that conversation, like you said, how do you how do you eliminate or try to decrease that concept of that negative those those people no those people have those people are your neighbors they're they're your sons they're your daughters they're your friends like these people are are part of our society they can contribute and i can't imagine what it feels like to be them so being empathetic when you see somebody that is struggling these are people that are struggling it's not choices that they're making it's a struggle that has hit their life incredibly hard and to I think it's important for people to put themselves in their shoes to reach out to places like Metanoia and say how can I help how do I um, volunteer how do I donate without contributions to places we can't operate and I think that's really important maybe you don't have the time but you have the money maybe you don't have the time and money but you have a connection make those connections hear the stories, listen to the stories, actually listen, not just be like, oh, that's a sad story and move on. Cause we can all do that. We probably do that on our Facebook or whatever social media you do, or, oh, that's a nice story. I'm going to like it. Well, do something about it and get off your couch <laughs> and do something because I'm pretty sure we're all stuck inside. So figure out what you can do and, and make that change, be a part of that change 
be a part of that conversation. And I think that's what people can do. And that's how we start changing that story and that storyline. Now, I, some people may not know this, but um, we're, we're also in a, a, a special time right now and that we are undergoing the census. Um, and a big part of the census is, right, that we're counting people in different places to figure out where we allocate funds, right, through our government funding system, whether this is grants or, or whatever it is. But one population that's so hard to count is our people that are experiencing homelessness, right? One you have to know where to find people that are experiencing homelessness because they don't get that little postcard delivered to them in the mail, right? Two, because I suspect of the degree of stigmatization towards the homeless population, they are very reluctant to trust people, especially people. So how, how do we, are you guys with through Metanoia thinking about in that in any capacity and and how do we try to uh, address that that missingness because it is unfortunately a big mechanism for allocating funds sure it definitely is um i think that's why there's been such a big push within the homeless population continuum of care to get those census filled out i mean you know they're going around to all of the sites traditional sites and getting the census from those people. Um, there's a big push with even outreach getting census. I think it's also important to recognize that every year there's a point and count done and taking that information because that also will apply for some funding. And they had kind of tweaked it a little bit from the year before. I think they're still going to start tweaking it even more. But um, every year, I don't know if people know what a point and count is. So I'll kind of explain it. It's when everybody in the entire city or area go out at a specific time and document everybody that is homeless, whether they're located out on the streets, whether they're in the shelter, their age, race, all the details that you can get possible. It is really, really an important data collecting day. And so I did it when I actually did it in Phoenix, it was probably one of the most impactful days that I had ever experienced. And it changed my perspective. So when point and count comes up next year or the year after, and if they're looking for volunteers, I would highly recommend anybody that, you know, has some sort of background with homeless population or social work or anything like that to volunteer for, for it. It will change your perspective in your eyes just to see where these people are living every day, you know, whether it be in the weeds next to the railroad tracks underneath a bridge in abandoned buildings, you know, it's, it'll change. It will literally change how you view our world and how much we need to be better for everybody. I think it's also important to note when it comes to census taking with the homeless population is how important outreach is. Cleveland itself has, I think, we have a few entities. We have a few entities that do outreach, but it's it's the same people. They visit the same people all the time. So they develop, once again, the relationship that Metanoia tries to make with our guests. So when we did outreach a couple weeks ago, I'm thinking of one camp in particular. It was down a very difficult to climb hill underneath an overpass. And 
when the outreach worker we were with called out people's names, they knew him by name. They were happy he was there. They were like, you need to come down and talk to us. If that particular outreach worker goes to that camp and says, hey, I'm working on the census. Would you be willing to answer some questions for me? They are more likely to answer him than they would be to answer me, who they've never seen before. And I'm, I'm trying to help them, but they don't know who I am. They don't know what I'm going to do with that information. They don't trust me enough. There's not a relationship built. So once again, it just highlights how important building relationships with people is. Absolutely. And thinking about kind of addressing needs as relationship building, right? That that so much of it is about seeing people as human, as people with lives and experiences and 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 worthy of friendships and relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That wasn't a question. I'm sorry. I'd like to- <laughs> Like, gonna have a question? Nope, don't have a question. <laughs> no, we completely agree. And I think that's what Metanoia is really built on is that um, concept of relationships. And yeah. I mean, literally, that's the meaning of Metanoia is how do we change that spiritualness of that individual to help them get get the services that they need? And it's, and it's really their story. What yeah. what do they want? Ultimately, I'm not going to lie. I would love if every season I could be like, just 45 of our 45 guests <laughs> found housing this season, but a lot of our guests are not at that point yet. So it is just as much of a success if Bob <laughs> meets with a housing outreach worker 20 times during the season. If he didn't meet with a housing outreach worker once during last season and he met with our housing outreach worker 20 times and he's still not ready yet, but he's having those conversations. He's having those meetings. That is a success as far as I'm concerned, because if it weren't for us, he wouldn't have even had those. And then maybe next season he will be ready to start the housing process. Or maybe his goal is to call his parents that he hasn't talked to. We we had three guests this season who reconnected with family. And when explaining that to people, a lot of people are like, Oh wow, cool. I call my mom every Sunday. And I'm like, but you don't know these guys' story. You don't know why they weren't connected with their family. This is a huge deal. This is a huge step. This is something we should celebrate. You mentioned, right, getting involved and and thinking about social change work. For our listeners, what are some ways that they can get involved with the work, Metanoia? Yeah, I'll let Katie answer this (laughs) because I'm in charge of that. (laughs) They can call me um, or email me or visit our website. So we... During Due to COVID, we kind of scaled back our volunteers before we officially closed for the season because at the beginning, looking at who was getting COVID and who was passing it on, it was not going to be the population that doesn't travel. It was going to be our well-meaning volunteers who went to New York for a weekend and then came back and were like, I want to go serve a meal to some homeless people. So we cut our volunteers. We were like, we're so grateful for you. We're so thankful, but please don't come into our hospitality (laughs) centers. You will get our guests sick. But now that um, our season is reopening, starting in November, we're looking at how to bring in volunteers in a um, controlled, controlled, (laughs) safe manner. I think we're going to start with our meal volunteers. So each night we feed our guests meals. That used to be, I'm not going to lie, a very terrifying endeavor. Um, (laughs) DUCC with 60 guests asking someone to make a meal for 60 people is scary. I don't know if I would be willing to do it. I made sandwiches for 60 people Yeah, once. We, we did it. So I don't know why she's saying she I, doesn't I did know. do it. 
I did do it. We did do it. Um, <laughs> multiple times. Multiple times. But now that we're focusing on that smaller group model where each of our locations are going to have 10 to 15 people, we're looking for people willing to make meals, whether that's a home-cooked hot meal or if it's a bag with a sandwich and fruit. And I tell people, our guests never say no to dessert, but it's not expected. Um, and... We're looking for people willing to come monitor showers at our locations where um, our guests are able to take showers, people to help run our clothing drives. This year, what I really want to focus on is bringing volunteers in to just interact with our guests. So we're kind of looking, yeah, we're kind of looking at somewhat of a new concept, a mentoring partnership where individuals, they would have to fill out an application and um, we would kind of assign them a site and then try to match, hook them, them, match them with a guest. And maybe that night that they come, the guest and that person would do some art therapy together. Or maybe they would do some yoga together. It's really just like activities. Maybe they will watch a Browns game. Yeah. It's just like <laughs> activities that they could do together to start building that relationship. And then, you know, from there, the conversations will start. Um, naturally. We did touch base with the Westside Catholic Center and they do a career mentorship. So I am kind of trying to work with them to see if when we pair our people, if they could then be a feeder program into theirs. So just again, partnering with other outside resources. So yeah, check out our Facebook, check out our Instagram. Katie have, has now launched our Instagram, which we didn't have before. We are also on Twitter <laughs> um, and our website. It kind of gives a little bit more information and things like that. Our, and, and our website is all mine. All it's mine. All hers. She, she brags for me. She's my hype woman. <laughs> um, but you can find us but, at www.metanoiaproject.org. And we'll post links to all of this below too. Fantastic. Um, if we have a volunteer who is listening right now and is like, none of that sounds interesting to me, but I have this idea. We like I ideas. love ideas. <laughs> if someone wants to call and is like, this is what I can offer. I would love to come do this. I can't guarantee that there will be a lot of interest in it, but we will try it. And if it works, I will keep calling you. What? <laughs> <laughs> So is there anything else that you two would like to add? Any words of wisdom for our listeners? Anything that we didn't ask about that is really important? I think it's just really important for everybody when you are in your car or you're listening to this podcast, wherever you might be, to understand that people who experience homelessness, that does not define them. It's a step in their journey and you could be a part of their, their journey, whether that be you volunteering, whether that you being an advocate for them, whether that you be, you know, contributing to a place that helps assist them. We are all in this life together for a purpose. And I think everybody can impact each other's lives. And you just need to take that next step. Don't let fear of unknown or fear of what ifs stop you from helping other people because it is it's individuals that just need some assistance and and you could have a huge impact on where and how their life turns out 
That's awesome. Thank you both so much for joining us. This was fabulous to hear about both of your lives, uh, but also <laughs> learn more about the Metanoia Project. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy Podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan, and my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Goldmox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio, and supported by the American Political Science Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org.